Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series in the parables of Jesus. That is, these remarkable, beautiful, short stories that Jesus told throughout his ministry. Sometimes when you read the Gospels, it seems like most of Jesus' teachings were in the form of stories. And so we're looking at these stories together as he's told in the Gospel of Luke, seeking not just to hear some quaint stories, but seeking to better understand who Jesus is, what life with him holds for us, and what life in his kingdom is like. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know if you've ever noticed uh, the words on the front of your bulletin on a Sunday morning. A lot of times we get it, we open it, and we, we look what's inside. But if you look at the front of your bulletin, underneath the... The, type, the name of the church and the logo, you see a, a sentence that's there every single week. Seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. That is, that's our church's mission in, in a nutshell. What we're hoping to see God do in us as individuals and as a community and then in our city. We hope to see God's renewing grace in our own lives taking our sinful and rebellious hearts and renewing them by his grace, restoring us to God, moving us out of our selfishness to love, moving us out of our greed towards generosity. We want to see the gospel renewing our lives and changing us and then using us to be a part of God's renewing work in Jacksonville, in our city, around the country, around the world. We're seeking the renewal of God in all things. We believe that the gospel promises us nothing less than that. That the gospel calls us to set our eyes on that big, high, lofty goal. The renewal of absolutely everything in Jesus Christ. And yet, so often in our lives, if we're honest, it doesn't look like we're a part of the renewal of all things. It doesn't feel to us in our own experience of the faith, sometimes like our own hearts are being renewed. We look around us at our neighborhood, we look around us at the city and the world, and it doesn't feel like the king of the universe is renewing all things and restoring all things to himself. That's what this story, uh, really these two short metaphors are about. You know, Jesus' disciples were in a very similar position that we are, maybe even more starkly. You see, they had left absolutely everything, believing that Jesus was the king, believing that he was the Messiah, believing that he was the one who would renew all things, destroy injustice and sin and poverty and violence, that Jesus was the king who was going to restore everything. And yet in their experience of their life with Jesus, yes, some people were getting healed, that's nice. Some wonderful stories were being told. Some great teaching was being done. A few blind people got their sight. Some great things were happening. 
But it surely was not the renewal that they expected of all things. There was a gap between what they expected of Jesus and what they were experiencing of Jesus. And if that's not true for you, if there's not a gap between your own experience of Jesus and what you expect of Jesus, then the the chances are you misunderstand what he's offering. That he is offering this incredibly too-good-to-be-true almost renewal of everything, that there is a gap in our lives. And so Jesus comes to explain that gap. He says, well, you see, the kingdom, the, the restoring rule of all things, doesn't happen like you expect it to happen. The king doesn't come in on his horse with an army to overthrow Caesar and restore everything to righteousness. It doesn't come on all at once, sweeping away all of your problems, healing all of your wounds, doing away with everything wrong in the world. No, no, see, you understand the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, very, very small, planted in the earth and then growing to this great tree. See, the kingdom of God is like yeast, a tiny, tiny little bit worked into a lump of dough, slowly and over time bringing change to the whole thing. Helmut Tikla uh, was a German preacher. It should come as no surprise, right? If your name's Helmut, you're likely German. Helmut. Uh, he was a German theologian and pastor in the 20th century and one of, the, one of history's great preachers of the parables. And when Helmut came to preach this parable, the parable of the seed and the leaven, he told a story about his very very first sermon, the very first sermon he ever preached, when he first felt called by God to become a pastor. And he he obeyed, he went to his, his church after some preparation and a call, and he went to go preach his first sermon in his first worship service. And he preached, he says, to two old ladies and an arthritic organist, an old man who was wonderful in his own way but couldn't quite keep up anymore. And he preached his first sermon to these three little old people in this tiny little church while immediately outside, in overcoming the music, you could hear Hitler's battalions marching on the streets while millions and millions of young people joined the Hitler Youth Brigades and embraced his vision of the world. This pastor preached to three old people in a tiny little church. And it was impossible for him to imagine, to even begin to conceive that that this little church would thrive, would would grow, uh, would live in every country and every continent around the world. And that this empire that seems so powerful would one day crumble. But he said that's exactly what this passage is about. That what starts off small and sometimes overlooked and unnoticed has the power to grow, has the power to endure, has the power to outlast even empires. That's what this story is about. This story is about that little German pastor looking out and believing that the church was what was real and that Hitler's pretensions at kingship is what would fall. It's the story of an everyday Christian struggling with the same sin over and over again, the same addiction, in believing that his freedom in Christ is what's real, what's going to be lasting, and his bondage and addiction is what's going to fall away and be left behind. It's about um, a student in a school where he's the only Christian that he knows, and he feels isolated and left alone and like a pariah, believing that he he or she can be a witness in that school for Christ and not be changed by it. 
It's a story about the little things of the kingdom, the small things growing. It's the story about a small young church meeting in the midst of a depressed and dilapidated neighborhood, daring to proclaim that we're seeking the renewal of all things in Christ. And so from these two little metaphors, we want to come to understand how Jesus works in our life and in our world. We're going to look at the power of Jesus' work, the pace of Jesus' work, and the purpose of Jesus' work. First, the power. You know, the, the, the clear linking thing between these two metaphors, between the tiny little mustard seeds and the tiny little leaven, is that they are small things with a disproportionate amount of power. Uh, they say that mustard seeds were the smallest seeds imaginable in, in the ancient world. That these were the smallest seeds that Jesus and his contemporaries would have known about. 800 mustard seeds weighs about a gram, weighs about as much as a paperclip. So these are tiny, tiny little seeds that grow into a great and flourishing plant. Leaven is tiny, that's yeast, is tiny, compared to the lump of dough that it gets worked into. And yet, this, uh, the, the amount of, of dough that's mentioned here, when it becomes bread, is enough to feed about 1,000 people. So a tiny little bit makes for a lot. And what Jesus is clearly teaching is that the small beginnings of his kingdom, one man and his little handful of followers, growing into his small and struggling church, has this incredible redemptive power in the world. You know, Jesus lived a small life in the midst of a world obsessed with greatness. And if you think about it, Jesus' world the world of Jesus' contemporaries was a world of great powers and great ideas. You know, if most of what you study when you study Western civilization is the story of the contemporary powers and ideas of Jesus' day. He lived under the shadow of the greatest empire the West had ever seen, the Roman Empire, a world that, uh, that knew unparalleled military strength, unprecedented breakthroughs in technology and science, an empire that had united most of the known world at the time under Caesar's empire. Compared to that incredible kingdom, that thing that you, you read about in history books, Jesus' life was a small and out-of-the-way life. It was lived in a tiny out-of-the-way province in the midst of a tiny out-of-the-way territory in the midst of this great empire. Jesus lived, died, was buried, and we believe resurrected. And most of his contemporaries never knew that it happened. Would never have believed that that was what was happening during their history. He also lived in a time of great ideas. Right? Most of the ideas that you study when you study Western philosophy, Platonism and Epicureanism and Stoicism, were the beliefs that held sway in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus' ideas were relatively simple, relatively un unimpressive by comparison, so much so that Paul, the great preacher of Jesus' message, uh, went on to call it the foolishness of the gospel. He said, quite frankly, when I stand in front of these great people with their great ideas, I feel like a fool, telling them that I believe that this small little teacher of this simple little message in this out-of-the-way place died and rose again, and it's actually the hope of the world. He said, it, it, it sounds like foolishness. It sounds like something very, very small. 
And yet one of the commentators I read uh, on this passage, he teaches at a seminary in the Philippines. And what he said was he said, you know, you don't walk down a dirt road in the Philippines and find a hall dedicated to Plato. Epicureanism is relegated to history books. And yet churches you find scattered all over the world, from Jerusalem to Jacksonville to Jakarta, you see churches, big churches and small churches, studying not dead ideas, but the living person of Jesus who continues to ex- exercise this totally outsized influence in the world and in individual lives, still a living and breathing force. This is true for us, it's true in our lives, that this tiny and simple message has the power to change absolutely everything about you. Some of you are here and, and, and you're investigating Christianity. You're, you're, you're wondering what life with Jesus would really mean. The message might seem kind of foolish to you. But the teaching of Jesus in this parable is that if you let in that tiny little foolish message that seems like it has only to do with the periphery of your life, just with maybe your, your religion or what you believe, is that over time it has the power to make you into a new person. It has the power to make you fruitful like this tree. It has a powerful to make you potent uh, like the yeast worked into the dough. This simple message has the ability to change absolutely everything about you, to make you into who you were made to be. C.S. Lewis tells this great little, little parable of his own. He says, imagine that you are a living house. So imagine you're a house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there and running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace that he intends to come and live in it himself. See his picture, he's saying, imagine you invited a handyman into your house to unclog a drain, and then all of a sudden he knocks down a wall. And he says, hey, I'm going to need you to move out for a few weeks. I'm going to have to tear down the master bedroom. We're going to build a second story. You go, hey, I just paid you to unclog the drain. But he's saying, no, in our lives, God doesn't want to just settle for these little bitsy changes, little changes in what you believe or how you act. He's trying to change at a heart level everything about you to make you new, to make you alive to him in a way that you never imagined. So it's the power of Jesus' work in us. Now the pace of Jesus' work. You know, if you're anything like me, you love quick fixes and easy answers. I like to do something and to see the results immediately. I like to embrace a new pattern. I'd love to start a diet today and lose 20 pounds by tomorrow, start a new workout tomorrow and you know, add two inches to my coat size the next day. I'd love to, to begin to read a book on how to be an effective parent and immediately it happens. Right? I'd love to believe in easy and quick change. And yet those aren't the metaphors that Jesus gives us. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a quick fix. It's not like an apartment building that you can throw up in a month. 
No, it's this metaphor of a long, slow growing process. A long process. That the pace of Jesus' work, both in us and in the world, is much, much slower than we wish it was. My boys, uh, my two sons, love to go into the garden with their mom. Haley has a green thumb. She loves to be out in the garden. I don't at all. Um, But the boys love that. They've gotten that about her, and I love it. But what they also have is the patience and attention span of a six-year-old and a three-year-old. So they love to take seeds, and they'll run out in the garden, and they'll bury them in the dirt one afternoon. Then the next morning, they'll wake up and go, Mommy, Mommy, let's go out in the garden and see the tree. Let's go out and see what grew. Let's see what's there. And you have to explain to them, no, actually, you know, this kind of tree, it's, going to be, it's not going to be until the summer until we see flowers. This oak tree that we planted as a sapling, we're probably going to sell the house before it becomes big enough, right? This is for the owner after the owner that buys the house from us one day, right? That seeds take a long time to grow. They take a long time to become what they're going to be. And that's the way it is with us. When I became a Christian as a 15-year-old, if you had told me as a 35-year-old, that I would still be struggling with some of the same things that I'm struggling with, that I'd still be as selfish as I am today, I would have, 15-year-old me would have said, you got to be kidding me, old Dave. Surely you've learned by now. Surely you've grown up and become humble and more patient and more loving and more kind. I expected to be a lot better than I am right now, uh, those years ago. Because I like quick fixes. I like to look back over last week and figure out how I'm better than I was a week ago. But Jesus is doing a long and, thank God, patient work in my life. And he's doing a patient work in all of our lives. He's patient in us and he's patient with us. John Newton, the great uh, hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, was converted to Christianity out of a life in the slave trade. He was a a human trafficker, kidnapping people from Africa and bringing them into the European slave trade. And he became a Christian. And did you know that it took him 30 years, three decades of following Jesus, before he acknowledged his old way of life as sin and repented of it? It took him three decades to see just how evil he had been, just how evil that system had been, and to repent of it. God was patient with him. He did a slow and patient work of redemption in his heart, bringing him to a place of repentance. Every one of us has blind spots in our lives. We have things that, are, that we don't see yet. That over the coming years, through your relationships, through your struggles, through your losses, that God will bring you to see, will bring you to change, because he's doing a slow work in us. Helmut Thielich pastored for decades under the shadow of Nazi Germany, believing that the gospel could triumph in the midst of that dark, time in that dark place. It takes patience, believing that the work of the kingdom will come. As a relevant aside, it takes patience to plant a church. It takes patience. It's not a two-year sprint, right? I think I, maybe a part of me thought it was, right? That you're going to, we're going to open the doors and then it's going to be poof. You know, it's going to be a fully functioning, well-built, well-run, ready-to-go church. But it's a patient work. It takes work to build with quality and to to invest in our neighbors. It takes patience to build something from scratch, trusting God to build something enduring 
out of it. I read this week about the story of the uh, Cologne Cathedral in France. It was begun in 1248, and it wasn't completed until 1880. Since I'm not good at math, I wrote it down. 632 years it took them to build that church. 632 years. There were people who went to work at laying brick and carving stone for the Cologne Cathedral who knew that they would never, ever see it in its fullness. Uh, They knew that their own children would never see it. They knew that their grandchildren. They knew that they were a part of a multi-generational process of building something for the glory of God. Now, we want to have a big vision and a long-range vision. I'm not about to introduce our 632-year vision. But it does take patience. That's to build a building. It took them 632 years. What does it take to build a church? To build a true community of reconciled believers, reaching out and changing a neighborhood, beginning to change a city. We want to pray for the patience to have a long-range view of what God could do in and through this city through a church committed to God's renewing grace in our own lives and in the lives of our neighbors and in our city. But it takes patience because of the work of Jesus is a patient work. And then finally, the purpose of Jesus' work. You know, I love these two metaphors because they point us in the direction that the work of Jesus, the work of the church, is not for our own good, but for the good of the world. It's not just for the good of the church. It's for the common good. It's for the good of the cities where he's placed us. It's for the good of the world that he's left to our care. That the scope of the church's mission just isn't to make those who are already here happy. But it's as we're renewed by the gospel to begin to be a renewing presence in our city and in our world. Look at these two metaphors. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. It's a vision of the church growing and becoming something that can offer God's sheltering grace to others. the, The birds come and find a nest there. They find safety. They find refuge. That God's church is to be built up to be a refuge and a safe place for the people of the world to gather in together. And to find grace, to find mercy, to find life. And then again, what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. I love these two images because I think they get at two different dimensions of the church's mission. One is the church's call to hospitality. To be a welcoming and healing place that welcomes people in. That gathers people in towards the church. And then the other is this image of the church's scattered ministry. That like leaven that gets out and gets worked into the dough, it brings its influence into the whole batch. Right? That the church both gathers people to Jesus and then sends people in Jesus' name into the dough, into the world to change it. You are the leaven. You're the yeast, those who bear the DNA of the gospel, those who've been changed by Jesus, being worked into your neighborhoods and your families and your places of business, being worked into your relationships, that you would be a transforming presence where God's placed you. I love the the verb that Jesus chooses here. He didn't have to choose this one, but he says, it's like leaven that a woman took 
and hid in three measures of flour. She hid it. She placed it in there and she worked it in, but it's hidden. It does a hidden work. Some of you may very much feel like your work in the world is hidden. You may feel like nobody much notices. You might feel like it's not doing very much good. You might feel like you go to work week after week and nothing much happens. You might feel a sense of futility in your calling. You might sense that you've been reaching out and trying to build friendships with your neighbors for 20 years, and they still seem hard to you. But the yeast is hidden in the dough, often out of the way, often unnoticed, but doing its hidden power because there's power in it, because Christ is the power of new life. One story uh, that struck me about a, a missionary who did this hidden work, whose work was hidden for generations. There's a man named Dr. William Leslie. He was a medical missionary that in 1912 moved into an isolated part of the Congo, the Republic of the Congo in Central Africa. He lived and ministered there for 17 years until his health required that he return back to the U.S. He returned back deeply discouraged, believing that his 17 years of labor and struggle, he'd yielded virtually no fruit to speak of. So he returned to the United States, and nine years later he died, believing that that stretch in the Congo was a lost time. But then in 2010, almost 100 years uh, from when Dr. Leslie moved there, another missionary team led by a man named Eric Ramsey moved to this same part of the Congo, this same stretch of villages along a river, their research told them that when this team of missionaries arrived in the Congo, that they would find virtually no knowledge of the name of Jesus. That maybe if people had heard him, they wouldn't really know what he taught or what to make of him. But to expect virtually nothing as far as receptivity to the message of Jesus. And yet here's what Ramsey reports as they began their ministry in the Kwailu River Valley. He says, when we got there, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each village had its own gospel choir, though they wouldn't call it that. They wrote their own songs and would have sing-offs from village to village. We found a church in each of the eight villages scattered across 34 miles. We found a 1,000-seat stone cathedral that too often got so crowded in the 1980s with many walking miles to attend that they started a church planting movement in the surrounding villages so that people could have a church in their own village. Dr. Leslie started the first organized educational system in these villages, spread literacy, taught them to read the Bible. For 17 years, he battled tropical illness, armies of ants, leopard-infested jungles, and attacked by wild animals to bring the gospel to this part of the Congo. And he never lived to see the fruit of it. He never lived to hear the report back about the transforming work that God had done through those 17 years. Because of the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus, is more often than not a hidden work. It's powerful. It's truly working. But it's taking a long time. And it's often hidden from us. Because why? Well, because it's like a mustard seed. It was sown into the ground and then became a great tree, offering shelter to the birds. Because it's like a little lump 
of leaven that got worked into the dough to make a loaf for the, the feeding of thousands. Because it's like a dead body that got put into a borrowed tomb with the stone rolled over it, only to burst out into new life three days later. That The kingdom of God does a hidden work, but a powerful work. So I encourage you to keep showing up faithfully where God's placed you. To keep showing up faithfully, to show up faithfully in your work where God's called you, where it doesn't seem like anything's happening, like you're battling against futility, believing that Christ can work powerfully and patiently through your work, to keep showing up in the lives of your kids, even when it seems like what you say goes in one ear and out the other, when it seems like you're missing their hearts on a daily basis, keep showing up faithfully. Keep investing in them. In your own battle with sin, in your own battle with addiction, don't give up. Keep showing up faithfully, believing that Jesus' work is powerful over time and that he's working in you and through you. Because if you keep showing up faithfully, you have no idea what Jesus will do in you and through you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess uh, that we often despise the slow and hidden and humble and patient way that you grow your kingdom in us and around us. Lord, we would love uh, to be transformed in an instant to become who we were meant to be. But instead, you work in us patiently. But you work in us surely and thoroughly. Lord, we would love for your transforming work in this city to be done in the blink of an eye, for there to be no more poverty, for there to be no more injustice, no more sin, no more unbelief. But you're working patiently in us and with us. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as a church as we seek to slowly and humbly and patiently do your work here in our place and time. Lord, we pray that you would help us by faith to be faithful to our callings as workers, as parents, as friends, as spouses, as church members. Lord, that you would help us to have faith, to believe that you are building a kingdom that will outlast all of the kingdoms of this world. Give us faith to see it, to invest in it, and to live for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.